Welcome back to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. My guest this week is Stan Honey, a professional navigator with countless victories. He's won the Volvo Ocean Race, has 11 Transpac wins under his belt, and was aboard the 103-foot French trimaran Groupama when it set the non-stop circumnavigation record of 48 days. And in 2016, he was navigator aboard Comanche when she broke the transatlantic speed record for a monohull by crossing in five days and 14 hours. That one he did by riding a single system ahead of a storm the whole way across the Atlantic. In addition to being a successful navigator, he's an accomplished inventor and businessman. He's probably best known for inventing the technology that puts that yellow line on the first down line in a football game. He pioneered on-screen navigation for cars before there was even GPS. And as the director of technology for the 34th America's Cup, that's the one that was held right here in San Francisco, he was instrumental in showcasing those races on television using high-tech graphics. Oh, and he has three Emmy Awards. He's also a very approachable, nice guy who loves sharing his knowledge, which is what made this interview so wonderful. Stan and his wife, Sally Lindsay Honey, also a very accomplished sailor and businesswoman, who I hope to have on this program sometime soon as well, Together, they race and now cruise aboard their Cal 40 Illusion. I'm going to break this interview into two parts because Stan and I covered a lot of ground. So this episode is part one of a two-part series. Enjoy. Thank you so much, Stan, for joining us on the program there is just so much to talk to you about in terms of sailing and technology and navigation. But I want to start way back and ask you about your first memories of sailing. I know you, your family were sailors and you grew up sailing. My dad, when I was, uh, oh, you know, tiny, he bought and fixed up an El Toro from a family friend. And I think he he did that as a you know project that he was interested in, and then he took us sailing as kids, and that was the first time I recall having gone sailing. And then um, the other early memory was we used to um, borrow an L24 from a family that we were very close with, and we later owned a boat with, a Cal 30 with, but we would borrow this L24 and we'd go to Catalina and sail around as a family. And that turned out to be the L24 Dove that uh, Robin Lee Graham subsequently um, sailed most of the way around the world in. That's really interesting. Uh, My first boat was actually the second boat that Robin Lee Graham had, the Allied Looters 33. Wow, what a coincidence. Yeah. (laughs) That story had a, a, a real impact on on me and a lot of people who I've talked to on this podcast. Yeah, it sure did. I guess he's in the Midwest now as a farming or something. I think so, yeah. But what was it about it that um, you fell in love with or that drew you to it or what, what are the positive memories you have? You know, it was interesting. I think the things that attracted me to it was 
the fact that it was technical and I was interested in all things technical, whether it was, you know, electronics or science or math. Um, and it was something I could do with adults. And so, you know, I could do it with my parents and do it with, you know, do it with other kids as well. And then, you know, be on a crew with adults and race against adults. Hmm. Um, and then it was just incredibly diverse. And that was something that really became a attractive part of sailing for me, especially as I got into, um, you know, junior high school, high school and college is that, you know, the amazing diversity of sailing where you could compete, you know, by yourself in a dinghy you could compete with, you know, other people in a double-handed dinghy, and then you could uh, be a crew on a um, ocean racer. In those days, I would, you know, crew on Cal 40s and L50s. And then it was also technical, both the, from the standpoint of the sailing and the tactics, but, you know, I was interested from the beginning in navigation. And in those days, navigation wasn't technical, you know, from the sort of electronic standpoint, it was all traditional um, celestial and dead reckoning, but it was very technical from the um, procedural and the mathematics of of it. You know, reducing celestial sites and doing running fixes, you know, graphically on a chart, and so all of that attracted me. But I think the part that I really liked about sailing was just that diversity of the sport. Hmm. You have this thread of interest in in navigation and then obviously technology throughout your career in sailing and and beyond it was the the mathematics uh what was it that that you that clicked for you i guess i just liked all things technical because there was a right answer mm. you could figure it out and whether it was mathematics or whether it was you know science or electronics or what have you you know or physics um I just love the fact that, you know, there was a right answer and there was a wrong answer. It was that sort of that clarity that I really, I think, enjoyed. Does that clarity hold when you're dealing with sailboats and sailing uh, and racing? Often there are so many options. Do you feel like there is one right answer when it comes to well, strategy? Well, in sailing, there's certainly a right answer in hindsight. But, you know, part of the challenge of the navigator is, you know, figuring that out ahead of time in the presence of imperfect information. So you have to, uh, you know, kind of risk adjust your decisions and weigh your confidence in the information, you know, associated with each decision. And so, you know, the, in a difficult situation, you know, you might be trying to go around a high. If you get too close to it too quickly, you're going to be get stuck and you know that be subject to a substantial loss um, maybe the weather models disagree it's not just a matter of factoring you know a number solving an equation in that case you're having to weigh you know weigh the confidence you have in the different sources of information but nevertheless you're competing with other navigators that are doing the same thing and if you're better prepared and you have more sources of information and you have better, more accurate estimates of the uh, dependability of the different sources of information, then you won't always make the right decision every time. But on balance, you'll make the right decision more of the time. You know, on balance, you'll do well. 
And if it's a regatta, you'll do well for the regatta. Or if it's a, a race with um, many legs, like the Volvo Ocean Race, you know, it'll become apparent that you're doing a good job. Um, if it's just a single race, like a single transpack, well, then, you know, you can get screwed. But on balance, if you're working harder than most people, and if you better prepared than most people, and if you're thinking straighter about the risk adjustment, you know, based on the dependability of the data, you know, then on balance, you're going to, you know, do pretty well. Is access to accurate data the biggest change that you've seen in racing over your time? The access to data and then also um, just the way we navigate. You know, when I started navigating as a teenager, a major part of the job was just figuring out where you were and finding the marks, you know, and staying off the rocks. And obviously you needed to figure out where you wanted to go. But if you looked at the percentage of time you spent as a navigator, it was probably 60 or 70% of it just working your tail off, trying to find the marks. It could be absolutely frightening, you know, trying to find Richard, you know, Beg Rock or Richardson's Rock in the middle of the night in a, in a Channel Islands race or a Sand Nick race, or finding, you know, Fastnet Rock or finding the Sherbrooke buoy in the English Channel, you know, in the middle of the fog in a storm. You got to find it. And if you don't find it, and you don't have a plan to find it, you know, you're done. Because you could spend, you know, hours, you know, searching. And if you don't have a plan to find it that works, you know, you may not find it. So it was absolutely frightening in those days. But a major part of the job was position determination and finding the marks. As time came on, they changed the rules and electronics became available and it eventually became legal. Today, position determination is a tiny part of the job. You know, it's essentially vanished as part of the job because everybody knows exactly where they are um, with GPS. Um, and there's probably, you know, 15 GPSs on every boat if you count all the cameras and phones and satellite communication and AIS, yeah. and, you know, all the other sources. So position determination has gone away. And now the navigator's job is course selection. So in order to do the course selection properly, you, you get all the weather models that are available to you and legal. You do your homework and you get familiar with them and you characterize them so you know which ones are dependable and in what ways and what the characteristic shortcomings of the different models are. And then you have to have a really good set of performance data for the boat, you know, polar data. And depending on the boat, that polar data needs to be corrected for sea state sensitivity. Because you know some high-performance boats are very sensitive to sea state, and then the instruments, of course, need to be calibrated. And then at the end of the day, it's the thing the navigator spends most of the time now sorting out is trying to select the fastest course. And then you have to again the risk adjustment comes into it, meaning if you're ahead on a race and if it's not part of a series, if you just want to win that race but you're ahead. And if you have a big lead, well, the decisions you have to face are to what extent are you willing to invest that lead in increasing the likelihood that you're going to beat the second place boat by a meter. You know, and that's called covering. You use up your lead in order to increase your confidence that you're going to win. If you're behind, 
in a race, then it, there's another whole set of interesting questions. If you're behind and the boat ahead of you is going the right way and, they, and they're doing what you think is best, you have to just grunt up and follow them um, yeah. and wait for them to make a mistake. And if you just separate from them, maybe if you just decide, well, they're doing that, I think that's probably right, but we'll do something else. Well, you're probably right that what they're doing is right and you're gonna <laughs> do something that's less right and you're gonna lose even more. And it becomes, you know, an unwinnable situation. So we have, what you have to do is you have to just, you know, follow them until they make a mistake. Um, at the very last leg before the finish, you might just, you know, throw the dice and pick a corner or something. But at that point, it's a Hail Mary. But you don't, you wouldn't do that until the very, very last decision. Do you remember any specific races where you just felt you had to, oh, I hate to do this, we're just following them. And then they made the mistake and you took the lead? Yeah, I've done that, you know, especially in dinghy races where, you know, there's a boat ahead of you. You're going up the last beat and the third place boat is far enough back so that you just decide you're going to go into a attacking duel. Mm. And so you just decide you're just going to relentlessly attack and the hopes that they screw up attack first or in the hopes that you're able to attack better. And from the standpoint of, you know, your position in the race, that's a mistake. You're just throwing away distance and attacking duel. But at the time it makes sense because you know, it's the last leg of the race. You're not gonna, you're not gonna mow them down. You know, you're not gonna catch them. There's not enough race left. But if you can suck them into attacking duel, and if you tack better, or if you force them into a mistake, you know, then you still can win the race. You know, and I've done that in situations where it didn't work, and I've also done it in situations where it did work. And it's easier to win attacking duel from behind, because you're the one who's attacking, and you're the one who can time every tack. So you can time it for when you're ready and you can time it for a slight shift. And so typically the boat that's behind will, will gain an attacking duel. You know, it's a tactic that you'd never do if you were by yourself. Right. But, you know, you sometimes do it in a race where as long as you're confident that the third place boat isn't going to catch you or if it's a match race. Do you remember your first long ocean passage? Was, was it a race or were you just doing a passage? I mean, as a function of how you define long, but overnight, it probably would have been in the old Whitney series out of LA Yacht Club. And they had, you know, the Catalina Island race, the Tri-Island race, the San Nicolas race, the Channel Islands race. And those are races that ranged from, you know, overnight to, you know, three days. But those would have been the first um, overnight passages under sail that I did. And those certainly would have been the first races that I did, you know, of that length. Yeah. And then in that same community, I grew up sailing out of LA Yacht Club. And LA Yacht Club in that era was um, one of the most highly respected areas of ocean racing on the West Coast. You know, there's guys like um, George Griffith and Al Martin and Willard Bell, um, you know, Kenny Watts. Dick Deaver, you know, all those guys were doing races out of Los Angeles Yacht Club. And it was just an extraordinary environment to grow up in. And back then, people at all levels of the sport had the good sense about the sport so that if there was a, you know, kid in the dock with a sea bag, you wouldn't get left in the dock. You know, some boat would pick you up and add you to their crew. 
just because everybody knew that that was the right thing to do. And in my case, you know, my family didn't have a race boat and my father had zero interest in racing. He was a great sailor, um, but he didn't, wasn't interested at all in racing. But nevertheless, I discovered that, you know, if you were down there on the dock with a sea bag and, you know, clearly interested, you'd, you'd get taken along. And then before long, people realized that I worked my butt off and that was pretty good. And people started offering to pick me up. And give me, you know, what age was that? Oh, that would have been early teenager, you know, yeah. 13, 14. Um, and then before long, I was navigating. And that was something that I just was interested in. And I taught myself how to navigate. And then as now, navigators are a community that look out for one another. And I found that there was skilled navigators like um, Ben Mitchell Sr., um, Peter Bowker, much later in life, um, Mike Quilter, who, you know, all of these guys, if you ask them a question, even though you're competitors, you know, they would stop, drop everything, and absolutely openly, you know, tell you everything. And, you know, that's a standard that I try to hold myself to, you know, when kids or other navigators ask me questions, is just, just always answer to the best of your ability. You know, in LA Yacht Club, I started to, I you know, the owners of the boat started to ask me to do more and more of the, you know, coastal piloting and navigation for the Whitney series type races. And by the time I was a teenager, I was navigating boats to Mexico, you know, using Celestial and doing Hawaii races using Celestial, the Transpac. And am I right that you did your first Transpac at 20? Uh, that's right. Yeah, I think it was on Sumatra, Al Martin. Paul Martin's L50. That was in 75, I think. And then there was a Transpac in 83. I know I'm skipping over a lot here and we'll get back to it, but 1983, you raced the Transpac aboard Nolan Bushnell's boat. And as I understand, that was a pretty pivotal race in terms of where it took you next. Do you want to talk about that at all? You know, it's a funny thing. You're right. It was a pivotal race. But the funny thing is you look back and all kinds of things in your life are pivotal, you know, where you realize that, <laughs> you know, true. wow, if I hadn't, if I hadn't had that opportunity, um, you know, all this other stuff would have happened. And I've said that, you know, to a number of people in my life where I've said, you know, if you didn't give me that break at that time, my life would have been different. And, you know, they all kind of say, oh, you know, no, you know, stuff works out. But it's interesting. But that was a pivotal race. Um, Steve Taft and John Andron were the key guys for me. They, I didn't know Nolan at the time. Bruce Monroe had a, had sailed with Nolan, and he Nolan was you know had earned a bunch of dough out of Atari and Pizza Time and wanted to um, win the Transpac. He asked Bruce Monroe to put a program together to win it. Bruce hired uh, Steve Taft and um, John Andron, you know, to put the crew together and pick a boat. Um, those guys um, suggested me to navigate it, so I became, you know, part of the afterguard. We got Ron Holland to design a boat, had it built. Um, Chuck Hawley, a legendary sailor, was the, you know, kind of the boat captain who looked after the boat. That's how I got to know Nolan, and then we did end up winning the Transpac. The boat was a bit of a disappointment, but it was good enough to win the Transpac, plus Merlin went the wrong way, so that was a huge help. <laughs> As we were talking about before, you just wait for the other guy to make a mistake. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I don't think we could have beaten Merlin in a fair, you know, had they gone the right way, but fortunately they didn't. 
the, uh, so the vote was a bit of a disappointment, but we won the race, so everybody was happy. Um, and then I got to know Nolan, and I was working at SRI at the time. And then Nolan was interested in technology for consumer markets. And the first company that I co-founded, um, eTAC, you know, came out of that meeting. And Nolan was interested in navigation. And you know, Ken Milnes and I had built a computer system for the boat that did a bunch of stuff that became prevalent later. But I think Charlie was the first ocean racer in the world that had a system that would automatically capture the performance of the boat, automatically analyze our performance relative to the other competitors, and automatically um, download weather facts maps and compute routes, you know, based on the expected weather, the performance of the boat. It was hostile to use because, you know, we, Ken and I just got it to work and it didn't have a fancy user interface. And, and you're operating this in a, a marine environment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was all packaged up to be, you know, waterproof and all, but it was, a, you know, an NSC 800, which is a equivalent of a Z80 only running in CMOS. Um, and it was um, primitive. It, the hardware was primitive, but it did a lot of the stuff that people do now with modern software like Expedition. But the user interface was far more hostile. For, for folks who don't know, let me just uh, back up a second and say, ETAC was a company that you ended up selling, but they, you did car navigation systems, correct? Yeah, we pioneered the first you know, in-vehicle car navigation system, which is, you know, the rotating map and the dashboard that shows you where you are, keeps track of where you are, and then you could enter in an address and find a destination and drive to it. And eTAC, we were kind of too early for that market, so it was hard at the time. This is before GPS. Memory was still really expensive. Um, mass storage devices were crude. But nevertheless, we built the system that worked, the eTAC Navigator. We started the company in 83, and the Navigator was on the market in about 85. It was on the cover of Popular Science. And then we licensed essentially all of the car makers and automotive electronic manufacturers. And ETAC was kind of the pioneer of all of the vehicle navigation systems that come later. And ETAC's patents, including a patent on map matching and a patent on the rotating map, were widely licensed and generated lots of patent royalties through the years. And then ETAC is now part of TomTom. Oh, okay. You know, a Dutch navigation and digital mapping company. And I love that the name ETAC comes from Polynesian word that's related to navigation. Talk, talk about the, how, how that came about. Having been interested in navigation forever, I would always, you know, whenever I had the opportunity, I would always write papers on it, whether it was a meteorology course. And I think at Yale, I was, it was an anthropology course. And so I wrote my, you know, sort of term paper on traditional navigation. And I'd read all the books on um, traditional navigation, you know, David Lewis's books and others. Mm -hmm. And so I was familiar with the concept of ETAC. And then in probably late 1983, we'd started the company, you know, we'd already were underway building a vehicle navigation system. But at some point, our lawyer came to us and said, hey, you know, we need a name for this thing. And so I didn't want anybody to spend a lot of time coming up with a name. So I scratched my head and I came up with a couple of um, 
like basically came up with the term ETAC, which I had been aware of through navigation and writing papers in college on navigation. And the Polynesian approach was actually related in some ways to what we were doing at ETAC because the Polynesian, the cognitive mapping approach that the Polynesian navigators used was kind of a canoe centered world. And they thought of the canoe as the center of the world. And as you sailed your canoe in different directions, the islands would move. But it was always, you know, the canoe in the center of their cognitive space, and then the islands would move depending on, you know, which way you pointed your canoe and how long you sailed. At that point in late 83, we'd, we'd figured out that what you really wanted was a rotating map display where the car symbol, you know, stays fixed and then the map scrolls and rotates it around it so that the car is, you know, kind of, you know, fixed on the screen. And so after we figured that out, I figured, well, shit, if we need a name for the company, let's call it ETAC because that's the <laughs> same approach that the, it's the cognitive approach the Polynesians use. And I think there was only two people that I know of who figured it out, that who knew what the word ETAC meant in navigation and said, oh, that's perfect. And one of them was a Polynesian who you were sailing with, I understand, on a, yeah. a one Hawaiian canoe. Yeah, one was Nainoa Thompson, who was the navigator of Hokalea. And the other guy was, I think his name was Ken Farmer, but he was a expert in human factors at General Motors Research. And he was working on, you know, very broadly in the area of, you know, better user interfaces for cars. And he was a guy who was super well-educated and he happened to have a broad enough background to have to be aware of the cognitive mapping approach that the Polynesians used. But, That's uh, but yeah, and I know I was ex stunned that a, uh, you know, a Howley would know what ETAC meant. And <laughs> there would be a, uh, you know, a company founded by Howleys that would be named after ETAC and that it was appropriate. He was just, he thought that was extraordinary. <laughs> That's great. All right. Well, we're bouncing around in time here, but I, wanted to go back and ask you uh, about a particular trip. So you did a lot of competitive sailing and winning um, while at college at Yale, but I, I wanted to ask you about the trip that you took after school with some friends. You left LA, you went through the Panama Canal and spent some time in the Caribbean. Um, it was actually during college. I took oh, a year off after my, after my freshman year. And my sister took a year off after her junior year. And then we had a bunch of friends who, you know, took, I think we were all in college. So everybody took, took, you know, a year off from college. My dad, you know, his boat, we borrowed it and we made a deal with my dad, which was that we would borrow the boat for a year. And then when we got it back, we'd redo all the varnish and paint and fix it all up so that he could sell it. Um, and at the time, this was in, 75, I guess. At the time, yeah, it would have been 75. At the time, uh, sailing offshore was hard, meaning it was all dead reckoning and celestial. There was no electronic navigation. And so when I think back over it, I th it's an extraordinary thing that my dad did to loan us his boat. Both because his, you know, kids are going off to where communications is, you know, essentially non-existent. In those days, there wasn't a whole lot of cruising because it was hard. You had to do yeah, what you yeah. were doing. And um, navigation was, was um, 
you know, risky and challenging in those days. The, um, but yeah, it was an amazing um, thing that my father did to loan us the boat. And it was, it changed all of our lives. It was extraordinary. What impact did it have on you when you came back? Well, just the level of responsibility. I mean, I was 20 and, you know, to be, or 19 when we left and to be, you know, the skipper and navigator of a boat with, you know, six people on it and, you know, off you go, you know, to go down through the Panama Canal around the Caribbean and back. That's just a lot of responsibility for a 19 year old kid, you know, with friends. It, yeah, I think it, it changed all of us, you know, with the work on the boat, the earning money to pay for the expenses of the trip, the organizing the trip, taking care of the boat. Did it all go smoothly or were there any mishaps along the way, learning experiences? You know, we had various challenges along the way. We The transmission failed off of Costa Rica. And so we had to sail for a few days to get the boat into, you know, Punta Arenas to fix the transmission. And we had to fix it twice because the first time we fixed it, you know, we didn't fix it right. <laughs> um, and, you know, so there was adventures like that. And then there was in the Caribbean on our way in the Caribbean, we got caught in one of these reinforced northerly storms in the trades and um, damaged the boat, broke some ribs and um, stove in part of the cabin side. So got a lot of water in the boat. Wow. So the engine and all the electronics was underwater. So, you know, we, you know, pumped it out and went back to Panama, fixed everything, um, repaired the boat and then carried on with our cruise. So we had some, we had some adventures. Yeah. What was, what was the boat? It was called Akamai. It was a K-50, Kettenberg 50. Okay. Not a perfect choice for that trip, but it was the boat that my dad happened to have. So that made it the perfect choice. That's right. Better the boat you have in hand. Right. The boat you have now is a Cal 40, and you've had that for quite some time. And you've raced it with your wife. But I mentioned that mainly because you recently took it on a well, somewhat similar journey to what you did back in college. Um, yeah, it was. Well, I always wanted to have a Cal 40 because I grew up out of LA Yacht Club and that's where the Cal 40s started. Um, George Griffith was the guy who originally came up with the concept. And then Bill Lapworth was a member of LA and he was the one who designed it. Jack Jensen was a member of LA who built them. And the legend has it that when George Griffith drew out on a napkin what he wanted, you know, a fin keel, spade rudder, light displacement, flat bottom boat, that um, Jensen and Lapworth told him he was crazy and they wouldn't do it unless he pre-sold 10 of them. So he pre-sold 10 of them and the rest is history. But it was the first fin keel, spade rudder, you know, flat bottom, light displacement, relatively light displacement boat. And it changed all of Yacht racing, you know, it won everything for about a decade. You know, Bermuda race, Transpac, the SORC, and all boats after the Cal 40 had spade rudders and, you know, flatter bottoms. And so the Cal 40 really was a, a breakthrough in boat design. And it was sort of like the, you know, 65 Mustang that came out the same year. You know, every car that came later was changed by it. And the Cal 40 did that in yacht racing. Um, and so I, you know, live, I was in the midst of it through that era. I'm sailing on Cal 40s and navigating Cal 40s. And then I brought Cal 40s back, you know, that year I did the Transpac in 75. 
I brought a Cal 40 back, you know, for pay. Mm-hmm. And I just really liked the boats. They were mild manners, just good sailboats. And so I decided that that's what I would get someday. So then in 88, Sally and I bought one and we'd sailed together for, I don't know, 25 years in 505s. But we decided it was you know time to get a bigger boat. And our concept was we would get a Cal 40, fix it up and go cruising. But old habits die hard. So what <laughs> happened was in 88, we bought a Cal 40, we fixed it up and then all we did was race it. So we raced it in the Pacific up, the Transpac, single-handed race, double-handed races, but we raced it to Hawaii five times. We did just countless Farallon's races. We did the Ocean Racing Series in San Francisco, the Inshore Racing Series in San Francisco. And we basically, you know, at one time or another, won everything in the Bay Area. And then it was just five years ago that we decided, well, shit, we bought the boat to go cruising, let's give cruising a try. So we um, put on a water maker and a Dodger and anchor windlass and headed south. And that was five years ago. And it took us, you know, we spent five years. We, we took us longer to get out of Mexico than we thought because we loved the Sea of Cortez. That was fabulous. But we spent two years in the Sea of Cortez, another year in um, sort of mainland Mexico, another year in Central America. And then this last year, we went from the Panama Canal north across the Caribbean, stopping in Providencia, Grand Cayman, and Cuba, and then Key West, and then on up the East Coast. So now the boat's in Rhode Island. But that was the first real cruising we've done. There was one year after the Hawaii race where we went to Alaska on the way back, but the boat wasn't really in cruising mode. We didn't have a Dodger, and we didn't have you know the gear you'd need, but we had a wonderful time. Um, and that was a, that was the only real taste we'd had of cruising. What surprised you most about the differences once you started cruising from racing? Well, cruising was easy for us because it was the same boat that we had raced hard for so many years. You know, we were just really good at shortening sail and reefing and, you know, doing all the sail handling shorthanded. So for us, cruising was a very stress-free experience. And then the cruising community that we ran into at the time found us kind of surprising that, you know, we'd set the spinnaker on more breeze than they thought made any sense. And we would um, be willing to go upwind, you know? Yeah. So if it was blowing, you know, 25, but we wanted to go to Portobello, off we went. And, you know, beating upwind in 25 and the cruising community just thought we were nuts. And maybe we were, but um, that, <laughs> But that kind of came out of just the confidence of cruising in a boat that we had raced so hard for so many years. And that was all sorted out, meaning, you know, all the leads were right and the reefing was easy and shortening sail was easy. And, you know, you yeah. just race, race boats get better sorted out than cruising boats do. And then cruising boats also tend to accumulate a lot of stuff on deck. So it's just hard to do stuff and there's a lot of windage and they don't go up wind that well. And just out of aesthetics, we resisted that. So even though, you know, our Cal 40 had become a cruising boat, if you looked at it, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a bunch of crap on the stern. You know, we didn't have arches and solar panels and fenders and barbecues and dinghy davits and, you know, all the stuff that, you know, and jerry jugs and all the stuff that cruising right. boats tend to accumulate. And so where'd you keep the that, dinghy? That's the big question. 
oh, it's an inflatable. So we just deflate it. And Deflated it. Put it yeah, away. Put it, down, put it below deck. But it wasn't the, we didn't have a high power dinghy that you could go zooming around in Mexico. And so if it was, you know, if there was a lot of surf and we need, wanted to go into the beach to meet the other cruisers, we'd take the outboard off and then we'd row ashore. And then if we got dumped over by our waves, we'd swim the rest of the way. So there you go. Yeah. I love it. But we didn't have a big powerful engine where we could, you know, go zipping in and out through the surf. Yeah. Um, so that's always a trade-off. Well, you mentioned that racing 505s with your wife, and she's a, an extremely accomplished sailor as well, two-time U.S. Yacht Woman of the Year. Racing a two-person boat, a smaller two-person boat, uh, would be tough on many couples. How did you two make that work? Uh, it was tough, um, but we eventually got it sorted and we figured out how to work together as a team. What changed? Um, I think just learning to depend on one another hmm. was the real key and learning to trust one another, you know, through thick and thin. Um, you know, whether, you know, so I would be calling tactics upwind and Sally would call the tactics downwind and we'd, you know, we just sort of divvy up the work um, and the decisions in the boat. And then I think the thing we learned was, you know, we're in it as a team. And if, you know, one of us made a mistake, well, you know, in the next leg, you, your hand of cards changed, but it's still, you know, you're still focused on, you know, doing the best you can. And th that's kind of how it works on, on big boats with really good crews. You know, as I think, as I'm sure, you know, people make a mistake and if the crew is good enough, it's just, everybody's still cheery and let's see if we can pass the next boat. You know, even though you just lost most of the fleet, you're still racing the next boat. And, you know, people just immediately get back into it. And it's an extraordinary experience to, you know, have the opportunity to sail with the crew like that, where everybody's, you know, comfortable in their own skin and they're comfortable with the rest of the crew and they're just there to compete and do the best they can. So Sally and I, you know, got to that point and then subsequently we discovered that it just makes a huge difference to our marriage because shit if you can get to get along well double handing in a boat you know competing at a high level like you know we went to i think five or six different world championships in the 5-0 if you can get along together in that sort of a stressful environment you know double handing in competition at that level then being married is a cakewalk <laughs> <laughs> is cruising harder or easier than racing racing you can get off at the end of the race cruising you're stuck together but it's less pressure i think it's the cruising's way easier you know it's different you've got time and you're you know going around and seeing stuff and meeting people and but you know when we cruised we would also enjoy the sailing itself so the sailing wasn't just you know moving the boat to a new town but we would actually you know enjoy the sailing and so we'd, you know, pick our times, you know, for a trip where it would be a, you know, an, an interesting and fun sail. So, you know, going across the Caribbean, it was just outstanding. You know, we, from Panama all the way to Key West, and we were probably beam reaching and, you know, 20 some knots of breeze. And it was just extraordinary sailing. And then Not the a direction the that a lot of cruisers relish going against the trade winds there. Yeah, well, we picked the weather. So it wasn't a hard beat, you know, it was kind of close reaching. And then on the way down the coast of, you know, Mexico and Central America, you know, 
if there was a time when it was, you know, the wind would pick up, you know, we'd try to time our trip to, you know, off we would go, set the kite and let her rip. That's great. So it was, but we did try, we did enjoy the sailing. And that's the nice thing about a California is that it's just a fun, it's a nice boat to sail. It's got great manners in almost any condition. It's mild manners enough so that, you know, if you mistreat it, it'll keep you out of trouble until you, you know, have the opportunity to get sail shortened and whatnot. So it's a great boat for double handing and, you know, shorthanded racing. And it's also a, an easy boat for cruising because the boat has such nice manners. Uh, and then for two people, there's plenty of space. I mean, it's a, as you know, there's small, small 40 footers, but we've almost never raced our boat fully crewed. We raced it once in the Hawaii race with four, and then Sally sailed it once in the Hawaii race with four women. But we've almost never sailed it with what people would consider to be a full crew for a Cal 40, you know, seven or eight. You've done Transpac solo a number of times, right? Just once. Oh, just once. Okay. How was that experience different? Um, well, the boat was perfectly prepared. So we, so I set the record that year and, you know, won the, won it, um, but had a really, really good autopilot. Um, and this is something that I had designed and that was sort of my secret weapon. And that's all, frankly, a secret weapon that Sally and I have used in our double handed racing and even in cruising, but the autopilot will, you know, steer by the wind. So it'll steer to the polars. So it'll bear off in the puffs and come up in the lulls and it never, ever accidentally jibes and it never, ever rounds up it, um, you know, an upwind it'll steer properly and it'll, you know, pinch through the puffs and, it's just extraordinary. For the single-handed race, that was a secret weapon because up to that point, um, nobody had ever, you know, carried a big symmetric kite the whole way. And yet that's what I did, you know. So we you start, you go through the gate and I think you set, first set a kite on the third day and then carried a kite the whole way. Huh. Is this steering yeah. gear that you designed yourself or you tweaked or? It was an autopilot that I bought, an Alpha Marine pilot, but I wrote a software that ran on a, a laptop that would control it. Huh. And so the software that I wrote that in a laptop would be the one that would monitor the instruments and monitor the, you know, the wind and know the boat's performance. And so that would be the program that's causing it to bear off in the puffs and come up in the lulls. That's great. Well, that's part one of my interview with Stan Honey. Stan mentioned that he enjoys sharing his knowledge, and to that end, he and Sally have posted online a lot of helpful information on everything from battery technology to safety at sea to historical articles about ETAC and more. You can find all of that at honeynav.com. That's H-O-N-E-Y-N-A-V.com. The next podcast episode will be part two of this interview, and I look forward to sharing that. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. Until next time, smooth sailing.